This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmood, currently from Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz. I'm trying to do the accent from Montclair, New Jersey. Hey, y'all. This is Dave Perez calling from North Carolina. See, that one seems like it's made up. That There's no way that's really. Yeah. Yeah. Perez's no, don't talk real. like that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> Not profiling. Dave, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. You and I have been friends for a long time, and it's certainly an honor and a privilege to have you on our podcast finally. Not that you have made it. This is one of the special events. I can't believe you have someone else in your life that's 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 bald with a beard. It just seemed, <laughs> I thought I was your only, you told me I was the only one to deal. Phil, you and I have this tennis relationship. <laughs> yeah, this golf relationship. That's true. Got it. It's all about a sport. Mm-hmm. Let's share a little bit about you, Dave. Could you tell our audience, what do you do? Sure. So now I'm leading the sales team for a startup out of Vancouver, British Columbia. It's a green and sustainable company that makes uh, high-performance building envelopes. So the walls and roofs for manufacturing and uh, different types of industrial buildings. So we've figured out how to remove Portland cement out of the manufacturing process. So it reduces the carbon footprint of a building by at least 40% at real airtight solution. So very, very exciting product. And we're three years in inception and I've been with the company a little less than a year. And what's, what's your background? How did you get involved in design, yeah. build, construction and data centers? <laughs> it's, it's probably the path least traveled, but I actually, I, I went to school as an engineering major. I played a year of collegiate golf and the engineering and the, and the golf didn't really go hand in hand. And so I, I dropped back to business and I actually graduated with a hotel and restaurant management degree, if you can believe it. And worked in hotels while I was in college. I worked at Doral Country Club in Miami. And then, you know, when I graduated, I knew that I didn't want to work in hotels anymore and gravitated towards the technology side. So I actually just went to a recruiter, was looking to get into technical sales and started working for an architectural building supply company. And that's kind of how the journey started. And then it just kind of went from there. I had met somebody that worked for DuPont and knew someone. And that's how I got into the microelectronics and the semiconductor business through through that connection. And then gravitated from the molecule delivery side into the process guts of these technical buildings. And then eventually gravitated towards the design and the building of and construction of these technical buildings. So spent at least 30 years in microelectronics, at least that much in pharma life sciences, probably 15 years in the data center space. And then, you know, have, have, you know, also have been exposed to automotive, solar, thin film PV, you know, and some other technical buildings. Clearly there was a proclivity to, towards, right? you went to school initially for, for engineering. So is that, is yeah. that something you saw for yourself as a... Well, yeah. So it's, so I, 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 I grew up in a very ethnic and Cuban household in Miami. That explains the accent. Yeah, that explains. Hey, yeah, y'all. So, uh, no, but, so my dad was a, was a mathematician and a, and a chemist. 
And then my mom was a psychologist. So it was that old world, old school thinking that if you went to college or you went to school, you know, you studied medicine, you studied law, or, or you got an engineering degree. So that was always like in the backdrop. And I was always interested in math and science. But then, you know, I also was also very fascinated by the social aspects of the business and the front end of the commercial side. So I gravitated towards the business and the marketing side. The, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, what does a hotel degree do and how does that help you? But, you know, in construction, it's people management the same way that the hospitality industry is. So a lot of the skills, you know, relate. And, you know, the hotel degree in comparison to a business degree was more holistic. And the fact that you did do engineering, it's really an entrepreneurial degree. So you take every aspect and it's combined into one. And then you have some cool perks where, you know, they have wine tasting and other things that you don't get to do in the business school. So, so that was actually an added plus, but then when you bring it all together, it also teaches you how to, you know, how to pivot and how to keep moving forward, which is in essence where I think you know, how I have gotten to where I've gotten to is just intellectual curiosity. And it's like, man, I really would love to learn more about this. And how does this work? And then that kind of takes you to the next step. And then before you know it, you're, you're, you're on to the next thing. So, so what was your major when you said engineering? What, 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 what are you pursuing? Was there a specific field? Mechanical engineering. Mechanical okay. engineering is what I was pursuing, but you know, a year of that, I, I, you know, th this is at the undergraduate level. So it's a mixture of four forces with, with the science and, uh, you know, just basically said, right, I'm going to knock out my AA and I'm going to go undecided. And then after my two years, I'll decide what it is that I'm going to come back as. And it wasn't engineering. So why did you end up moving into the hospitality? What was that transition? Was this because of golf or was it easier? Was it wine tasting? I know you're still drinking wine and quite a bit of it. <laughs> no, it, it was actually, so the two things. So I went to Florida International University, which is not a very well-known school. And at that, the hotel school had just surpassed Cornell as the top program in the world. So it was that, so that you know, had some appeal to it to say, okay, you can go to the business school or, you know, which is one of many, or you can go to something that's the best. And then when you looked at the curriculum and you looked at the school, it was a better fit for what I wanted to do because it was a more holistic degree. There was engineering and hospitality, which there isn't in business. There's marketing, there's law, there's actually cooking classes, which again, something that I enjoy doing, but not, not the reason why I made that decision. It just, it just made a lot more sense to me. Again, I was, you know, 18, 19 years old and we wonder why we do things when we're young, but then you, you see them pay dividends years later and you go, wow, that, that, that was really the right thing to do. I, it's, it's very difficult for a lot of people to see a hotel degree in what I'm doing now because I'm surrounded by you know, people with construction management degrees and, and engineering degrees from some phenomenal schools. But the ability to take what you know and apply it to what you're doing is really what's most important. And they're all building Cattery Hotels, so joke's on them. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting that you bring a very interesting point that you see a lot of people with construction degrees in, in the vertical that you're in today. We don't see very many people in the data center industry with a data center degree. Is there is there is there a particular driver behind the construction whereby you see a lot more people going to college 
and getting a construction degree and getting into construction or? Yes. So I, yeah, so I think that's a very interesting question. And, and, and I see the same thing in the semiconductor industry, not in, in pharma, there's a lot more degrees that you can study that gets you into the pharmaceutical industry, but you're, you, you don't go to college to become a data center engineer or data center technician. You go to college and you get an electrical engineering degree, and then the data center industry kind of finds you or you find it. And microelectronics is, is very much the same way. You could be a chemi, you could be a mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, process engineer, and then the industry finds you or you find it. And I think that that is a tremendous opportunity for both industries to start to really penetrate these college campuses to get more people into these industries. As it pertains to construction and your question about CM, that's pretty linear. You go, you go to a construction management school, and then you get a job with a general contractor, and then you start building buildings. And then along the way, you kind of find which vertical or which buildings you like to build. And again, the data center industry either finds you or you find it, or microelectronics finds you or you find it. I do believe that those two are the most challenging from the pace of what's required. And I would say, you know, I don't want to offend anybody that, that works in construction, but it's not for everybody. You know, you have to make a lot of decisions within a very, very short period of time. And you got to make accurate decisions that, that are really meaningful and impactful. And then you have to move. And so a lot of other types of construction don't require that rigor of decision-making that, you know, affects the total outcome. So in a lot of cases, a lot of GCs will use certain types of buildings as training for some of the next verticals. But it it, it is a, you know, it, you have to... I. I you know, you have to really, really have a passion for it because it, it is very, very demanding, but it's also a lot of fun. And, you know, you look at what is accomplished at the end of it, and it's, it's really, it, it's, it's really something to be proud of. And at the end yeah, of the day, you can, you can take out your frustrations on the golf. I'll talk about that in just a <laughs> I'm sure. I haven't gotten to the collegiate <laughs> golfer element of it. I, you know, what, what strikes me when, when I'm hearing you speak about, you know, the way people go through, through college is, is kind of our fundamental thesis behind, you know, what we're trying to do with the Nomad Futures Initiative and whatnot in terms of, you know, kind of updating uh, the curriculum across, across you know, all levels of education, even, even early on, because <laughs> You know, you're you're totally. You know, it's, there's there's a really traditional approach to a lot of these majors, particularly in major universities, that haven't really changed much. You know, maybe no. there's you know different versions of computer programming, and you might have introduced some you know application development that's you know somewhat more you know evolved in in our current framework. But you know, the notion of uh, going to school for you know a, a data center degree is is absurd. Doesn't exist unless you're talking about like a really specific you know program, which is more of a continuing education type of thing, rather than you know a data center curriculum. And you know, I guess the question is, is that because the universities haven't kind of caught up to that, or is it because you know we're just not exposing society to the fact that data centers exist? Uh, as much, you know, construction, obviously they have digger land for, for, for the kids out in Jersey where, you know, they can play with, uh, with, with construction gear and, 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 and they love it. What exposure other than, you know, a, a flippant comment here and there, or maybe a news uh, article every, you know, every quarter 
is there that the data center industry even exists? Yeah, I think, um, I think you hit a lot of points there. And I do believe that the education system as a whole needs to be relooked at and revamped. Some people will say, you know, is four years too long when you look at specific, you know, technical degrees, you know, then you're, you're talking about, you know, five, seven, you know, nine years of school to become a doctor. And you look at, you know, what they're doing in other parts of the world where they're accelerating these programs because we need more doctors and we need to figure out how to educate them faster. And then when it comes to like the data center world and these technical industries, there, there should be a faster path. You know, does someone that is going to go work in an engineering and in a technical field, you know, do they need to take, you know, two years of English and humanities? Like some people will say yes, because it makes them more rounded. And some people will say it kind of slows down the process. And so I think there should be an option where if that's something that you want to do and you want to become more rounded and have a more holistic education, you should have the opportunity to do that. But I think there should be other opportunities in other schools that should go down a path of, you know what, let's accelerate this. And within two and a half years, you could get a very, very specific degree in something that you're interested in. Like I've seen, you know, I've, I've had three kids that have gone to college and I've seen, you know, some universities that are really doing a better job in creating a better education or more holistic education around what the student is interested in versus Again, I don't want to offend anybody, but a lot of schools have tenured professors where they have to put kids in those classes because they don't have a choice. So they start to create these mandatory courses that people need to take, but do they really get anything out of that? And so that's someone. Ironically, the the offensive podcasts tend to get more listeners. So keep offending. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, so that's, you know, that's a real, you know, issue. Like, you know, my son went to to UNC Chapel Hill. And, and I, I would hear that, you know, there's classes that they're forced to take in, in the first two years, because you have these tenured professors, they have to put kids in those seats. They, they don't have a choice where my middle daughter went to a private university and what they were doing was radically different. And they actually went away from a semester system to a block system. So it shortened the courses, but it allowed you to take more classes. So instead of taking two semesters, you took three blocks in a year. So by four years, you've taken 16 more classes. So you can major minor or you can graduate faster. And that to me is a better way of doing it. I think it's kind of in sync with what we've been talking about, that we have not had educational reform since the second industrial revolution. So it's time to start reevaluating what the future beholds. And from what I'm hearing from you, I think there's potential to go back to trade schools mindset as well. Uh, what, what is education at the end of the day? Believe and, and just having known you for such a long time and, and your journey to get to where you're at today and the exposure and experiences that you've accumulated, one of the things that stands out is that we are continuously learning, even on the job every day, it's basically getting education in some capacity. So does that college degree really matter? Or you need to have foundational skills and you need to have discipline to continually evolve and learn. If you, if you, can, if you can learn on your own, do you really need to get a degree from MIT, Yale, or Stanford. What's the value of it? 
Yeah, then the question that, becomes the practical knowledge. So much of what we do, you learn on the job because it's, it's pretty specific and it's it's not theoretical. It's it's the opposite of theoretical. You know, it's it's experiential learning, which you know is is just something that universities are not. You know, they're 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 not equipped to 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 have that. Yeah, the the what I would say early career or the earlier version of myself when I looked at having a degree or not having degree, the way that I you know, looked at it was going to college demonstrated your ability to finish something. You start something, you have the ability. So it, it, it was almost like something that had to do with the person's character less than the knowledge. But you look at all of the information that's available to us today, you know, you would, you would argue that someone doesn't really need to go to college necessarily to be able to get the same education because there's so much information that's out there already. If you want to do math, you can go on the computer and you can look and you can, you could study math. Anything that you want to study is almost available at your fingertips now. So then what is it that these colleges or universities doing that helps you prepare for that next step? And you know, that's a, that, that could be debated on, on both sides. But, you know, the other thing that I'll gravitate towards is, you know, coming, you know, being a, a, a minority kid coming from a Hispanic background, it's also access to education because a lot of, a lot of kids, you know, going back to what you were saying to be about trade school, the, you know, a Wake Tech, which is the, the, the large, it's one of the largest community college systems in the country. And it's our community college system in, in Raleigh. They're creating a ladder program where they've recognized that a lot of kids, that it's not just the, the means to afford college, but the fact that they have to go to work away to be able to help their family. So creating a ladder that allows them to step into a short course trade school or some skill set that they can learn that gives them a short course degree. And then with that, they can build on it and get another one and then start to build a ladder, which works towards their associate's degree. And now they're working with two or the three major universities in the area where they're now accepting that as an AA that allows them to, to move and, and get their degree. So access to education is also a big thing because not a lot of people have it. And there are some really talented people that if given the opportunity, could step into, you know, a trade school, learn a trade, and then figure out how to build those skills to move into into management or other things. Dave, you could not have said this any better. This is really the whole charter for the Nomad Futures Foundation that we want to address the diversity gap that there is, and we'll get to the minority piece in just a bit, but also provide education to people in underserved communities globally and bring that talent pool up. So that resolves a human capital issue that we've been struggling and fighting exactly. for the last at least four or five years. One of the things that really stands out is the, the level of exposure in the industries that you have touched from hospitality to renewable energy, mm -hmm. to research and teaching facilities, to nanotech, to data centers, PV, solar, life sciences, semiconductors and electronics and construction. Now, how, how do you keep up with this constant evolution of technology and modernization of every single thing that I just mentioned here before, how do you keep up with all the advancements? So um, there's there's similarities and then there's differences. And, he, and, and so 
you, you pull the similarities together and then you understand the nuances and the differences of each building. So if I told you the characteristics of a life science building, a data center and a semiconductor building at the core are very, very similar. They're powered buildings that can never go down at its core. So now you just start to add complexity to it. So in a data center, it's large electrical infrastructure, and then you have data halls. And I know people don't want to hear this, but it's probably the simplest of the three. When you get into pharma, you start getting into clean spaces. They're worried about bacterial, they're worried about mold and mildew and those types of things of getting it out of their environment. So you start to get into a certain type of clean room and then they're moving water and media. So it's tanks and vessels and reactors, and then a lot of automation. And then when you get into microelectronics, you have clean rooms, but now they're looking at particulate matter. So they're concerned about particles in the air that can land on a chip that could affect the yield. And then you have five to 600 gases and chemicals that are moving into an environment that are causing a different reaction to be, to be able to manufacture and put layers on a, on a wafer. And then, so those are those three. And then when you start to look at thin film PV, it's a, it's a, it's a version of the microelectronics process, but a stripped down version of it. You look at, you know, solar in essence is a, is thin film PV. And so it's just, what's the substrate? Is it, you know, gallium arsenide? Is it polysilicon or is it something else? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's kind of the, the, you know, and then you, you know, you, you get into autumn, like if you, if you look at automotive, for example, there's a little bit of everything. You get into paint booths, you got clean environments, you've got a tremendous amount of automation, which almost every type of manufacturing now has a lot of robotics and automation. And so that's also changing the way we look at manufacturing jobs. So now maybe the number of jobs are not as much because we don't have as many you know, uh, labor inputs into the job, but the classification and the difficulty of the job has been raised. So those jobs pay more and it's a different skill set now. I think there is a shift of the jobs. So there might not be as many jobs in that particular segment. Those jobs are shifting into other areas as we are excelling. So that's our, you know, for every job that's being eliminated or every industry that's been closed or shut down, there's four more opportunities that are being created. So it's the transfer of that skill set potentially in something new as we move forward. So that's the constant evolution that we were referring to earlier in that constant education, whereby you've got to be open to learning and exploring other mm -hmm. opportunities and finding your passion. It might be in the same field with a slight modification, or it might be a total new opportunity for people. So we are in the data rush era, and this is just the beginning of time in a lot of ways that a lot of new opportunities and jobs are going to be created as we move forward. So it's not that technology is killing jobs and opportunities. It is creating, but it's just a redefinition of where the human capital is going to be used. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think part of it is, you know, there's there's a fear amongst, I think, the the workforce that, you know, that notion of jobs evolving from one to another is, you know, scary, change is scary in, in, in general. But I think the way you looked at um, the different facets of of construction that you've worked in and kind of relating them one to another 
is 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 a really great way for us to look at you know how people need to look at you know their skills and whether they're transferable so the the that that notion of the relatability i think is is incredibly important and i wonder if it's possible to kind of articulate that that even even better like how is it, it you know how have you started thinking about the 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 wide breadth of you know experience that you've had and at what point did you recognize that you know you you just kind of dumb it down break it down to its you know individual parts and 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 relate new information that you're taking in to old information that you have i think that in and of itself is a skill set some people call it you know critical thinking i think it's kind of a lost art that's not articulated enough. You know, people actually either do it or or they don't. And I think we shine a light on it. If we demystify this notion that the world is this, this vastly complex place and all of these different elements of, you know, engineering and 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 construction are, you know, u- uniquely complicated. It it scares people. But if we if we take it down a notch and say it's actually not that scary, it's actually much simpler than that. And the skills that you have can be applied a, a lot more a lot more than 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 you may think that's a lot i don't know what the question is but answer it I, yeah no i yeah so what i understand the question to to be or the statement <laughs> let's spend the rest of the podcast trying to figure out what my questions are <laughs> is it, it's important to to base you know in order for the technology industries to be less threatening People need to find the parallels amongst them and then apply their individual knowledge set to what they think it is. And then they can transfer those skills to something else. God, he's a better bald guy than me. I think you're supposed to just just, just swap it out. We can use the same nab Snickers. Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) So let's, let's step back in time. Golf. What about it? It all comes yeah, back to you, golf. You, you, I you, you played at the college level. Why did yeah, you end up it. leaving? So I was, it was not by choice. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll give me two minutes to talk about this. So I, I grew up in a very, very Cuban bubble where baseball was everything. And I played baseball just like every, everybody else in my community. And it was, I, I quite, you know, I was a pretty good baseball player, but got really burnt out. And I was introduced to golf by accident by my grandfather. And he grew up in a, he lived in a little town when he came from Cuba that there was nothing there but a golf course and and the hospital in which he worked. And so I was a lucky grandkid that got slept to the golf course with my grandfather. So golf was something that was kind of in the background. And then I, I gravitated toward basketball and I really loved basketball, but I, I'm all of five, seven, five, eight. And so somewhere in my junior year in, in, in high school is when I realized that, okay, basketball is probably not going to be it. And I wanted to play a sport college. And so I started to shift and, you know, started to, you know, have more emphasis on golf. And then, you know, was fortunate that when I graduated, you know, we had a really good junior and senior golf season and, um, walked on and made the the golf team. And then Title IX, unfortunately, killed the program. So I graduated from high school when I was 17 and I, you know, was like devastated. Like I had no idea what Title IX was. And we walked into our coach's office and he said, he goes, you know, we, we all thought he was joking. He's like, hey, you know, golf is over. We're, you know, there's no, no longer a golf team. And I said, come on, coach. 
And so it really like, you know, like set, set me back because for the first time, like I had really, really started to learn about how to get around the golf course. Like you could hit the golf ball, but the strategy around the course is not something, you know, you need tournament experience and being an immigrant kid, we didn't really have a lot of opportunities to play in tournaments. There was a, a, a junior golf program in the summer and that was it. And so you're playing against a lot of these, you know, kids that have a lot more exposure to golf year round. And so I started to get that exposure. And, and then unfortunately, you know, that was, that was the end of that. And so, you know, I had to figure it out. And uh, that's when I, 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 I got a golf a job at a, at a golf, at a China golf resort. And so I played amateur golf till I was competitive golf till I was about 30 till we had kids. And, uh, and then, you know, it was, it was time to, to do something different. And I still enjoy playing as, as you know, and, and, you know, the short game is still there. The long game kind of comes and goes, which people say it's usually the opposite, but, uh, but anyway, I'm not shooting 68 in Hawaii like you are, but every once in a while I'll, I'll break 70. So yeah. I, I think that it needs to be like a Phil Dave mini golf tournament. I think that's the, your short game is still there. I think mini golf, maybe I can, I can, I can hold my own on a golf course. I don't even know what going on. hundred yards in, I'll take the bill. Long <laughs> game wise, I can't even hold a candle. Just like, just like skiing. My favorite part of skiing is like the bar afterwards. My favorite part of golf is the clubhouse. I, I just like the, I like the after part. I like the, yeah, we, we certainly have had some great times at the golf course. And it's kind of one of those things. Our friendship really excelled playing golf. And we got to really know Dave very, very over the years. And I would love to have Dave's short game. If I, if I can, if I can have that game, then nah, watch out senior tour. <laughs> you had mentioned earlier about being an immigrant and a person of color in America and growing up as a minority. How has that experience been for you in corporate America? Wow, that's a, that, there's a lot there. So let me, let me make a correction. So um, I, I'm an immigrant and I, I come from an immigrant background, but I, I'm not colored. So I, I blend in as a, as a white person and there's advantages and disadvantages of that. You hear a lot of ugliness that you're probably not, you know, intended to hear sometimes, but at the same time, you know, you feel a lot of times that your, you know, contributions are, are marginalized. And a lot of times I've felt in my career that I was basically, you know, checking a box. So it, it, it is, you know, it is taking you know, there, there's, there's definitely opportunities and jobs that I felt that I was very, very qualified for that I competed for. And I don't know that I was, you know, taken seriously, you know, and a lot of times it's not, it, it's, it's not intentional, but there's blind spots, you know, like there's, I read a quote a few years ago, I was at an, I was at an automotive conference in Detroit. And they were talking about diversity and inclusion, and they were talking about how blind spots and biases affect the way that it's, it's who are you helping? And because you're helping somebody, it feels good. And then you don't look at who you're not helping. And that to me is, is the true challenge because, you know, it, it, like if there's so many layers of this, you know, it's like you were talking about colleges. so. Like there's people that all, you know, go to the same college and then they go and they recruit 
new employees to the company that come from the same college, and then you create another version of yourself. And how do you get diversity of thought if everybody is coming from the same place and everybody thinks very similarly? And so at the same time, I understand why it's natural because you had a good experience at this university and you're very proud of attending that school. And now you want to help somebody else that went to that school. But there over here, there's a bunch of kids that never get looked at and hardly ever get an opportunity because no one includes them and they're not intentionally leaving them out. They're just helping somebody else. And because that feels good that they're helping, they leave out a lot of people. And it's, it's the rooms that you don't get in that, that really, really start to matter. And early part of my career, I know that you were talking about things that you would leave, you know, for other people. I oftentimes felt that the ideas that I had, somebody must have thought of them before because no one mentioned it. So I wouldn't mention it and I would stay silent. And then started to realize much later when I got a little bit more courage and a little bit more confidence to speak up and then realize that my ideas were valid and no one had thought of them. And, and that's the thing. It's like it, there, there's a balance there, but be a little bit bolder and, and have the courage to speak up and, and, and have your ideas heard. Because don't assume that because it hasn't been said that people have thought of it and dismissed it. I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a brilliant piece of advice that, you know, a people, people, you know, they, they say it, they hear it, but they don't listen to it. You know, it's a, you know, everyone has their own, you know, kind of way of, you know, coping mechanisms, et cetera. And, and you say, you know, I want to be super confident and then you get into that meeting or whatever. And then, you know, you, the, um, you know, as a protective measure, kind of insulate yourself from, you know, the vulnerability of suggesting someone something when you don't know how, how it's going to be taken. And I think to a certain extent, it's, it's obviously there's, there's that, 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 you know, personal responsibility of trying to be more confident and be more bold, which is, you know, to a certain extent, as I said, you know, easier said than done. But it's also incumbent, I think, on, on companies to mm -hmm. try to put um, more of a focus on it, not as a box checking mechanism. I think that's, that's where you run into an issue when you're just trying to, you know, suggest that you have a, a DNI, you know, diversity and inclusion initiative internally, and you just check that box and, you know, I have someone from this bucket over here, I have someone from that bucket over there, et cetera. When it's not really done in the same way that, you know, other, other initiatives are done where the company actually benefits from it, not because it benefits to check that box, it benefits from people inherently leveraging their lived experience to to do their jobs to to participate in in the company the reason why i would imagine you had these ideas that nobody ever thought of is because part of your lived experience subliminally as it may be is what drove you to make you know recommendation or think in a certain way and once companies start recognizing that that diversity across socioeconomic elements across gender across race race across religion that 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 participation in 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 the company is going to redound to the bottom line. It's not just about trying to fulfill you know some some civic responsibility. It's about trying to create the best product, trying to create the best company you can. And diversity of thought based on embracing different lived experiences is something that I don't think is is tends to be the focus because I don't know that 
that people really believe it, but it's it's entirely true, I think. Is it? I think it's wrong. It's, you can tell me if I'm wrong. No, no, you're 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 not wrong. But I what I what I was gonna say is that now, you know, I find myself in a different position because now I am in a in a leadership role and I am leading others. And so now I feel it's my obligation and my responsibility to create that environment for others so they can speak up, so they can feel, you know, and, and I don't I don't take anything against, you know, some of the of the leaders that I've worked for because they were, you know, they were they were good leaders in their own way. And I think time, you know, if, if we evolve as people and we evolve our way of thinking and things were a certain way for a long time. And now, you know, we're we're really starting to move the needle insert to a certain extent, but we still have also a long way to go. You know, you're starting to see more initiatives about specific, you know, whether it be gender equality, it be race equality, what, whatever, you know, we, we also have to be very, very careful because you, at the end of it, what we want is we want the best ideas of the most qualified people and to have those opportunities. And it, it, it's, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen this where someone's accomplishments are diminished because they're of a certain race or a certain gender. And then people say, oh, they're only, you know, they only accomplished that because they were looking for somebody. And, and you know, that's, that's another real thing that is happening that, you know, we, we need to figure out how to, how to squash that and get to a point where the best qualified individuals should have access to education and opportunity regardless of where they come from and all that we're trying to do when you come from a diversity background is to just have access to those opportunities. I think, you know, us being in those leadership capacities now, we need to be embracing our own voice and the fact that one is equal and should be treated as such. Dave, you and I have been great friends for a long time, and it's always fun to see you and have a conversation with you. What would you say are some of your key qualities that you have developed over the last few years that have helped you excel in your I would say that, man, that's, a th you know, I, I don't like talking about myself when it comes to those kinds of things. So I would say humility, I throw that in the, in the, you know, in the forefront to say, you know, I'm always thoughtful about other people more so than myself. And I'm always, you know, thinking about, you know, my team and the, and the folks that are, that, that I, that I impact whether it be family, friends, or colleagues, or my company. And I think that that translates, you know, when you, when you put people in an environment around people that you feel are trustworthy, I think you can accomplish a lot more. And I, I think that that's part of it. And then I also believe that, you know, being curious is, is a key component. You know, I, I think my curiosity is kind of what, you know, landed me, you know, in, in, in different industries. Um, I never really thought much about it as I was going through it. But now I take a step back and go, wow, I, you know, not sure how I did that, but I, I guess that was pretty cool. So, you know, I, I think, you know, honesty and integrity, you know, it's, it's something that is, is, is spoken of a lot, but you know, everybody thinks they have it until they're, they're challenged. But I think, you know, that, that, that speaks for its, for its own self. You know, we've all had our, our successes and, and failures and you have to accept and learn in, in that. And, and I, you know, just most recently, you know, was in a meeting with, with someone and it was, and they were pointing out on how we need to talk about 
our failures uh, the same way that we talk about our successes. You know, when, when you, you know, like if you're doing a departmental report out, you say, oh, we accomplished this, this, and this. And then it's like, what about this and this? Oh, we didn't get that done. But what about these three things? And it's just like, you don't get better if you don't address your shortcomings. And we have to be very, very real about that. And that's how we improve. And that's how we get better. You know, and that's one of the cool things about being in a young, you know, young company. I don't even know if we're still considered a startup or not, but it it's because, you know, it's, it's win or learn and you're constantly, you know, you, you have some successes and you have some, some things that you didn't get quite, but you, you know, so in watching people and the passion of people pivot around what they didn't get exactly. So then, you, you know, you, and, and as we say, you know, building the, the plane as we're flying it. So those are, you know, I, I, I guess I might've rambled a little bit, but, you know, I think that those are all, you know, qualities that I think I've exemplified throughout my career. And I, I think that that's, you know, what's hopefully made me successful. I think perseverance is, has also been a key component, you know? Yeah. There's been some challenges you, you've, you've lived through some of them with us and you've had your own. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's getting back on that horse, man. You know, it's, uh, look, I think it's, I think it's incredible. And as I say to anybody that has a conversation with me, the brilliance is in the ramble. You just have to find it. The, you know, uh, what's, what's in incredibly interesting about, I I'm hearing, you know, authenticity. I'm hearing all of the, the compassion is, is, it seems like it's another key one, but I think what, what is is so lucky, let's say, about you know the company that you're with now is your lived experiences. You're be you're you're able to provide that impact internally. I think the you know more often than not, it's the company culture that that allows for that you know win or learn as opposed to you know win or lose. A lot of those situations where you want to gloss over you know the shortcomings that that you find in a particular quarter or on a particular project you, there's an environment there where you're going to be demoralized for sharing it at best and and reprimanded or or fired at worst and it's those types of cultures that you know the traditional corporate you know eat or be eaten type of culture that i think is something we need as uh, you know as a society to leave behind and certainly you know not not reward so bravo to you know creating a culture of that you know winner to learn recognizing that you know those 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 lessons are sometimes more valuable than the wins yeah i think yeah i think we you definitely learn a lot more in your uh, in your failures that you do in your successes successes are usually by accident the failures uh, have lessons in them yeah I, you know, played played enough sports to use sports analogy, but you look at how difficult it is for a championship team to repeat, and and what they did to climb the mountain is a lot different than than what it takes to stay there. And if 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 it's all built on success, eventually you're going to fall down because you you forgot what it's you know what got you there. So. Indeed. Based on what you know today, and all the trials and tribulations, and a phenomenal journey that you have had had thus far. What is that one key takeaway that you will tell the young Dave Perez? Enjoy, enjoy every aspect of it. Like it, a lot, oftentimes you're, you're trying to get to the next thing and you're, and because you're trying to get to the next thing, you're not savoring the moment or enjoying the moment of, of what's there. It, it happens quickly. Life is, life comes at you fast. And, you know, if you look at, 
you know, everything from your, your career, like early career, mid career, and now, you know, where we are versus, you know, like raising your kids and you think, you know, how quickly that, that moment and people tell you, oh yeah, enjoy it, enjoy it. It happens fast, but that's what I would say it's, is, you know, even, even in the tough parts, you know, savor those moments because I think that result that builds resilience and builds character. And that's what gets you those tough moments. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this was Dave Perez. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dave. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.